Dear God, we come to you today and we are grateful that you speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your will, your view, your um, lens on life in black and white. We are so grateful for this precious gift. We know not every people group, language group in the world has this incredible privilege. Lord, I pray that we appreciate it, that we use it, that we marinate our mind in your truth so that we can look at life as you look at it, so we can make those decisions that bring honor to you, that uh, help us to walk out practical daily righteousness. Lord, today as we think about your word, Lord, I just want to lift up those in particular, maybe who are not Christians at this moment, but have come because a friend invited them or a family member or for whatever reason. I lift up those who are maybe have doubts about the Christian faith. Maybe they have a Christian background, but they're struggling and not sure that they truly embrace your view on life. So I just pray you'll open minds and encourage and strengthen us and help us to be people who are people of the book, your book, your word. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. There is an outline in the bulletin, and I would encourage everybody to get that out if you have a bulletin, because there's something at the end I want you to read with me um, when we get to it. So I want you to think about who or what do you trust? I think in many ways, we currently live in a very distrustful, cynical, skeptical culture. We listen to leaders, and sometimes later it's proven that they lied to us. And that's painful. We read something on the internet, and we're not sure whether to believe it or not. I read a great quote the other day. It simply said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. It was from Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and so we live in this cynical, skeptical, distrustful culture. And stepping into that is God's Word. Now, I have a church background, grew up in a Christian home. Many of you do, but not everybody. And there's this little pledge that I learned as a child. I just want to share it with you. It simply says, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Its words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, I think it's a great little pledge that we have kids do. There are sophisticated pledges to the uh, respecting, following, believing the scripture that Christian schools will have professors sign. The seminary I went to had a big statement of faith that the professors would sign. And one of the keys of having a Christian worldview is our view of the Bible. So, Week in, week out, what we do is we'll often open a passage of Scripture, pick a theme or topic 
in the Bible and try to unpack what God has said about it. But I want to step back from that today because that's an assumption. With a couple hundred people here, there's probably a few that don't believe the Bible yet or unsure. Or maybe you believe the Bible, but the only reason is because your parents told you to believe the Bible. You never really thought much about it, but you've kind of given it that status and that authority. So what I want to do today is to think about why we trust the Bible. Now, there are big, thick books on this. You could spend lots of time on this. I'm just going to scratch the surface. I want to read a starting scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may, have, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when I read a passage like that, it is absolutely crucial that we understand that the Word of God has great power in the life of the believer. But you have to believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and all the implications of that. And that's not something you can just casually throw out. You should think about that. If you're visiting here today and maybe you've connected with a few people and you're like, well, I kind of like this person or that person, this is the place for me, understand that you're going to experience, run into, and deal with the Christian worldview. And at some point, you have to decide who is the arbitrator of truth. Where are you going to find truth? Is it going to be media? Is it going to be some philosopher? Is it going to be the Bible? This remarkable collection of 66 books that I submit to you is not a collection of man's thoughts about God, but is a collection of God's thoughts about life, death, mankind, sin, eternity. It's God's lens. It's his viewpoint on life. And it is accurate in all that it teaches. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, once said, the Holy Scriptures cannot err. And it is important that in a world of fake news and disinformation on the internet, that we have a place to intellectually stand. And I submit to you the place to stand is the Word of God, the Bible, this incredible collection of books. Because simply put, you can use words like infallibility, inerrancy, inspiration of Scripture. These all point in the same direction that the Bible is trustworthy. It is revelation. It is a message from God. And the Bible tells us the truth. Now, we want to be a place as a church that allows ourselves to ask questions. I encourage you parents, many of you are parents, based on the number of children that just left. And I think it's crucial and vital that you convey to your children, hey, this, this is a place, this is a home, this is a church where you can ask questions. Why do we believe the Bible's true? Why do we think Jesus is the only way to heaven? Why do we think that him dying on the cross and rising from the dead saves us if we will commit to him? And so, don't be threatened by questions. 
lean into questions, explore questions, investigate questions. So I just want to give you a few reasons, and I'm not going to go very deep in them because I'm going to walk through about six fairly quickly. Why should we trust the Bible in an era when we don't feel like we can trust much? The first is the incredible unity of the Bible. If you're an outline person, you can fill that in, the unity of the Bible. Like the Quran, the the holy scriptures for Islam, was written over about 23 years by Muhammad, but despite having a single human author, it doesn't have that consistent dominant theme. It's not woven together like the Christian Bible. There's this remarkable unity about these 66 books. It's really pretty incredible. This one system of doctrine, this code of ethics, this plan of salvation, this rule of life and faith. This collection of books that we call the Bible or the Scripture is written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents in a couple different languages. And somehow, when you read the Bible from start to finish, there is an incredible, stunning, supernatural unity to it. I mean, if you grabbed a panel of experts, pick any topic that has any controversy at all, marriage, parenting, finances, politics, and you put a panel of four or five people from the same culture with similar education, you're probably going to get variations on what's being taught. There's not a unity there. And yet this remarkable collection of books, this book that we have the privilege of holding in our hands in our heart language, English, this book speaks to us with this incredible unity from start to finish, that God is the creator, that God is perfect and holy and transcendent and all-powerful and all-knowing, and that he loves us and offers us mercy and grace. It tells us about us, that we are made in his image, male and female. We have value. We are loved It also tells us bad news, that we have broken God's heart in a sense, that we have done wrong, we have rebelled against Him. And it walks us through that the solution, there's all these prophecies pointing, there's all these arrows pointing to the solution to that problem that we have, and that solution is Jesus Christ. It amazes me that these 40 different authors, Moses an emancipator, David a shepherd, then later a warrior, then later a king, Daniel a prime minister, Amos, a herdsman, Luke, a doctor, Paul, a rabbi, then a tent maker, Peter, a fisherman. And you see all this diversity in occupation, in lifestyle, and yet there's this, they're driven by the Holy Spirit to create this wonderful book, this collection of books that is unified. Erwin Lutzer, author and pastor, has an image that I like. He said, imagine various pieces of a cathedral arriving from different countries and cities, converging in a central location. Imagine this cathedral that the different pieces have been carved by over 40 different sculptors over a period of many centuries. And somehow this building project, all those pieces come together and it builds this remarkable, beautiful, stunning cathedral. That's a picture of the Bible. 
with all its complexity, simplicity, and unity. So that's the first reason that I find compelling on why we trust the scriptures. A second reason is archaeological confirmation. Archaeological confirmation. For instance, the Book of Mormon, which is the holy scriptures of, viewed as the holy scriptures of the Mormon church, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, it falls flat here. It makes historical statements, and over and over again, it is wrong. Archaeology doesn't confirm any of it. And yet, over the history of archaeology, they continue to find, you know, spade work after spade work, dig after dig, they continue to find and verify and confirm, and they find what they find lines up with what the Scripture says about culture and cities and times and all that was going on throughout history. Let me just give you a few examples. The Bible is attacked probably more than any other book over history because of the incredible stature that it claims to be, that it claims to be the very Word of God. And, you know, there should be some pushback on that. If you're going to claim that this book is the Word of God, you should be open to investigation. You should be open to pushback. And people do. One example where archaeology was helpful is for many, many years, critics of the Bible said that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch, which is how most Christians view the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, or at least a lot of it written by Moses. I think he wrote the whole thing. Um, He may have stepped out of the room in the verse where it says he was the most humble man to ever live. He may have had Joshua write that, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he could have written it, I guess. And so, but Moses, these critics said, lived too early for writing, that writing had not developed according to their understanding through archaeology. And yet, here's the key with this. If you give archaeology time, it catches up with this ancient book we call the Bible. And what was fascinating is they found the Elba tablets, and since 1973, when they began to unearth these, they have found 17,000 tablets It's in northern Syria, and these tablets prove that not only was Moses living in a time when there was writing, but there had been writing for about a thousand years before the time of Moses. And so the critics took a shot, swung, and missed in that case. Now, cities mentioned in the Old Testament, sometimes critics have said, well, that's a mythical city. That's not true. That's not real. And yet, they continue to unearth these places mentioned by the scriptures. They unearthed one was Jericho, which has a famous and prominent place in the book of Joshua when they come into the promised land, the Jewish people. And there's a story where God knocks down the walls. Now, what's interesting, not only did they find Jericho, but there was evidence that the walls were knocked down in a particular way that lines up with the biblical account. And so the skeptics had to step back from that. Bible critics said for a long time that the Hittite civilization didn't exist or didn't exist at the time that was mentioned in the scripture. And yet, archaeology has discovered that not only did it exist, but it had lasted, it lasted about 1,200 years. And that was, they, that's not that long ago that they figured that out. I remember being in seminary, being in graduate school, and they found the first extra-biblical evidence of King David. 
King David gets lots of ink in the Bible, but they hadn't found any evidence of David outside of the Bible. And so it was 1993, 1994, right in there, that they found uh, reference talked about the house of David and, and that connection. And so if you just continue to give archaeology time, they begin to catch up to the Bible. Nelson Gluck, a scholar who specialized in ancient documents, once said this. He said, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In other words, in every instance where the Bible could be checked um, historically against extra-biblical sources, the Bible has always been found accurate in what it reports. So archaeology offers evidence that the Bible is true. The third bit of line of evidence I personally find compelling is predictive prophecy. Once again, you can fill books, you could dive into this deep. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle Peter writes this about prophecy. He says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, prophecy is a direct message from God. It can be about the present or predictive prophecy, which I find incredibly stunning, is that it's about the future. Sometimes, hundreds of years in the future, it's very hard to make accurate predictions, right? Watch the weatherman. Watch a political analyst. It, it's comical, honestly. And many of us are parents, and we've all had those moments where you're like, well, I didn't see that coming, you know? I remember getting home from a trip, and family comes to greet me, and one of our children, um, you know, they greet me, and this little guy... <laughs> Um, I did not predict this. He was right next to me. I was the closest one I should have grabbed him. And at the airport, he literally, um, the, uh, the conveyor belt for the luggage was turned off. He ran up it and ran down below, committing several crimes, <laughs> which we were informed. Didn't predict that. It's hard to predict things. And so predictive prophecy is impressive. He was okay. <laughs> he was all right. They didn't turn it on. He didn't get caught in something, but it was a scary moment. Um, what had happened was he like threw a truck, and so he went after the truck to get it. So that's what happened. Now, just to give you an example, see, predictive prophecy is hard to pull off. In Doctrine and Covenants, one of the uh, holy books of Mormonism in their mind, the prophet Muhammad claimed that there would be a new Jerusalem and that it would be built on the western boundaries of Missouri and dedicated by his hand, by Joseph Smith. Well, he's died a long time ago. That did not happen. So that's an oops. And you've got to understand that the biblical, if you look in the Old Testament in particular, if you get a prophecy wrong, if you claim, I speak for God, and you get it wrong, they would kill you. Now, the New Testament's more compassionate, and what they do there is, it's like, shut up and sit down, don't claim to be a prophet again. It is a serious thing to say that you speak for the Lord. It is a sober thing. Predictive prophecy is powerful. I'm blown away still, after all these years studying the Bible about the prophet Isaiah, 
prophesying about King Cyrus of Persia by name 150 years before he's born that he is going to allow the people of God to return to their home city of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I find that impressive. That's impressive. And throughout the scriptures, there are all kinds of prophecies. I have never counted, but one source I read said there are like 2,000 prophecies about nations, Messiah, all these different things, and you can check these. And so if you want to dig into that, there is real value in that, in being blown away by this supernatural book. This collection of books, has, it's like it has this you know, predictive prophecy. It's like creating a, a fingerprint, a thumbprint, and you know, the person, say the Messiah, lines up with it. It's absolutely incredible. Some scholars say there are 200 Old Testament prophecies anticipating the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. There's at least 61 major prophecies predicting the Messiah, talking about him. Just a couple things about Jesus. His place of birth was predicted in Micah 5, 2. The time of his birth, kind of the season of his birth in Daniel, that he would be born of a virgin, which is, that's pretty unusual. That's a full miracle. The tribe he was going to come from, the lineage he was going to come from, from the family of David, uh, what his ministry was going to look like, that's in Isaiah. Um, His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver is in Zachary. His suffering and crucifixion is described in Psalm 22, which is before crucifixion existed as a method of execution. His resurrection is predicted. And you see all these prophecies, these predictions, and the Bible nails it every time. And so I encourage you to dig into that. You can find books, theologians, they can walk you through it. I find that incredibly comforting that this is the source of truth that I'm going to trust. Also, we have eyewitness testimony uh, for particular, think of the Gospels. You have, you know, and an eyewitness is a powerful, powerful bit of evidence. You know, Matthew was an eyewitness as an apostle. John was an eyewitness as an apostle. Mark was not an apostle, but he had as his source uh, an apostle. Uh, Luke was not an apostle, but he had his source um, an apostle, and he investigated with others. And so we have this eyewitness testimony. When you look at the scripture, that is powerful and profound. Eyewitness testimony is amazing. It's, it's like the best evidence you can get. I had a unique experience, um, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and I'm driving through my neighborhood, and in front of me on Riverview Drive, this car just careens off and takes out a fence, completely wipes out this fence. We have lots of kids in our neighborhood. I'm like, what is going on? I expect him to stop. He doesn't stop. He just keeps on going through the neighborhood. So I put on my cape and just followed him through the neighborhood and um, got to his driveway and just kind of babysat him until I called the cops, took a picture of his license plate, and he was a very drunk driver. And so, and so it's ironclad. Saw you do it, follow you to home, never got out of my sight. Here's pictures of the license plate, call the cops, they come, I'm still there, he hasn't left, there's no switching it out. Had a conversation with him, not a very coherent one, 
while we waited. Eyewitness testimony is solid testimony. And the Bible rests on eyewitness testimony. One of the things I appreciate about the eyewitness testimony of the Bible is that our eyewitness testimony tends to always, you know, put us in the best light. Like, if I were doing something I shouldn't have done in that little story, I'm probably not going to mention that, right? Isn't that how it works? When you, when you are Facebooking, um, do you mention where you did something wrong or the crashes, the failures? Not usually. Usually it's cleaned up. It's the cleaned up version. What I love about the eyewitness testimony in the Gospels in particular are that the apostles, they will just lay it all out there and reveal how bad they look. They'll talk about how when Jesus teaches and they don't get it. You know, nobody wants to feel stupid or look stupid, but they, they acknowledge that. They are open about that. They include, you know, Peter denying Jesus. They include that on the night he needed them the most, when he was about to be, you know, tried and, and he's going to be crucified the next day, that they all abandon him. They include that. They include details that would not have been culturally wise if you're making some of this up. Um, in our culture, I hope, I mean, I, we've come a long way, uh, women are treated pretty well. There's still some challenges there, but um, compared to ancient culture, women were treated terrible in ancient culture. And in Israelite culture, um, in the New Testament, what we're told is that um, a woman would not be allowed to testify in court, that they would not be viewed as reliable witnesses. And yet, who does Jesus choose to be his first witnesses of the resurrection? It's women. And the apostles don't change that. They don't, you know, they're, they're off, in a sense, hiding in locked rooms, and it's the women that go. In that culture, that makes them look bad. In that culture, that made the message less believable. Now, in our culture, it would not, but I'm just telling you about their culture. And so I love the eyewitness testimony because particularly when you look at the Gospels, you see them and they just lay it all out, whether it makes the apostles look good or whether it makes them look bad. And so you see this eyewitness testimony matters. Now, the, fourth, the, the fifth reason, excuse me, that I think that the Bible is the Word of God is the authority of Jesus Himself. Now, I'm not arguing in a circle here. I think you can read the Bible as just a decent history book and come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think it happens all the time. I doubt that the average person who begins reading the Bible has the fully articulated Christian position of infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration and that, that this, these are the very words of God, I think they begin to read it. They're like, well, a lot of people think this is a sacred book. A lot of people respect this. There's still a, a respect for the Bible in our culture with many people. I saw a survey that said it was like 80% view the Bible as sacred. Now, then I saw another survey that said like 50% think the Bible's wrong on certain things. So there's not, they're not consistent. But I think you can view the Bible as good history, decent history book, and come to get to know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit can work 
through the stories and through the lives of believers around you. And so you come to know Jesus and you submit yourself to him as Lord and Savior. And then it's a legitimate question to ask, well, this person I've gotten to know through this set of historical documents that we call the Bible, what does he say about the the Word of God? What does he say about the Scripture? Now, he talks about the Scriptures that they were using, the Hebrew Scriptures. We would refer to it as the Old Testament. And he treated them as the very voice of God. An example would be Matthew 22, verse 31. And we see that Jesus acknowledges the stories that skeptical Americans struggle with in different places. He acknowledges the creation account of Adam and Eve. He acknowledges the story of Noah and the ark. Jesus acts like that's history, not myth or a fable. He acknowledges the story of Jonah, the prophet that, remember, he didn't want to go and preach to this group of people that he hated, and so he runs the other direction, and God sends this giant fish or whale to swallow him, and he's in there for several days, and he gets you know, puked down on the shore, that story. Jesus talks about the resurrection being like a sign of Jonah, pointing them back to that remarkable, miraculous story. See, our culture has trouble believing miracles. But Jesus believes the Scripture. And Jesus empowers and commissions the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament to lay the foundation and give us a complete book, a complete collection of books that we can rely on and stand on intellectually as the Word of God. Listen to what he says about the scripture that was available to them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's speaking about Old Testament scriptures, Hebrew scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, which is basically about the size of our apostrophe, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says there's this divine protection over the Word of God. So we have the very authority of Jesus trusting the Scripture. When Jesus was tempted, what did He do? He quoted the Scripture. He leaned on it. He relied on it. He treated it as the very words of God even though he was fully God. The last idea is this, the transformational power of the Bible. So yesterday, part of the day, I, um, and I appreciate those that volunteered, a couple of journey people took several shifts. We had a booth at the Golden Days Street Fair. That was fun. I always enjoy that and get to talk to people and, and um, have, have different conversations. And just yesterday, I had a lady come up with her child and we're having a conversation. You know, she's looking into different Christian books that we were giving away and had this conversation about her faith and her walk with uh, Jesus Christ. And she's, you know, I mean, I'm a total stranger. And she begins to tell me how her life had been completely destroyed by addiction. 
and how she had lost her child, and she's pointing to the child right next to her, and she said, but Jesus has transformed me, and I have a year of sobriety, and I just got my child back, and I am just sitting there like, wow. That's the power of the Word of God. It shares the great story. It shares the great message that God is for us, paid the ultimate price for us. It's what we just celebrated at communion time, that he offers us forgiveness and salvation and transformation. And we see it over and over again in the scripture. We see Saul, an enemy of the church, becomes Paul, the great apostle of the church. We see the half-brother of Jesus, James, who once he sees the resurrected Christ, becomes a devoted follower of Jesus and gives us the book of James. And he's inspired to give us some practical living. It's one of my favorite books. And so we see this transformational power of the Bible like no other book. Books affect me. I love books. But nothing will affect you more than the Word of God. Nothing makes that kind of difference as you wade into it, study it, marinate your mind in it, memorize it. I was reading this week about, it was 1845, an American African slave, his name was Aaron, and he was dying. And his southern master came to him, and on his deathbed, this man who had lived his life in slavery said to his master, he said, would you please give me my freedom? I want to die a free man. His master said, what good's it going to do you? You're about to die. He says, I want to die a free man. He says, okay. You are free. And this man who had been a slave for decades says, he says, I want you to write it down. Write it down for me. And so the, this master wrote it down for him. He said, you are free. And he looked at that and he said, it is so precious to see that written. That's the message of God the Father. Unlike that slave who was taken captive. He didn't do anything to deserve that. We have entered slavery of our own free will, of our rebellion, our lies, our lust, our deep brokenness. And we have wrapped ourselves in chains that we cannot break. And God has written down for us a simple message that in Him, through His Son, we can be free. So I thought I'd close. If you look at your outline, I don't think I can really beat for a big idea what I learned as a small child. So I'd like you to look at that pledge to the Bible. It's at the end of the outline. I'd like you to say it with me if you believe it. It's very simple, but I think it's very profound. And I think it lays the intellectual worldview foundation for your life. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, its words why I hide in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. We thank you for this incredible gift you have given us, that you have spoken to us. You have not left us in silence. You have explained your will to us. Yes, it's a complex book. Yes, there are challenges in understanding all of it. But Lord, I pray that we would approach it with the openness of a child, 
I pray that you would help us to dig in, wrestle with the doubts, wrestle with the questions, be the kind of people that investigate, that find satisfaction in the answers. Lord, I pray that your truth would soak deeply into our minds and our hearts and transform us. This is our prayer in the powerful name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.